0: Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Bob again, and I've got Equal is Unfair, America's Misguided Fight Against Income Inequality. And I've got Don Watkins, and one of the other writers was Jorn Brook. Don, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Hey, great to be here.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Jorn um, and uh, what what he did in this book, and uh, then we'll dig in.
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, Yoran and I have written, we wrote another book together called Free Market Revolution. He's actually the executive director at the Ayn Rand Institute where I work. And a couple of years ago, um, I, I guess June of 2014, I was just in his office and we were chatting about the growing discussions of inequality and he went on a kind of big epic rant Mm -hmm. and uh, afterwards i said wow somebody's got to write a book on that and then i kind of chuckled because i knew that uh if we were gonna if he was gonna write a book it was gonna be with me (laughs) and um that's exactly what happened And, and our general style of working together is we just have a lot of discussions to kind of envision the project and then i do most of the writing and then we do a lot of collaborative editing after that
1: now um If you guys have been involved in several books, though, right?
0: Yeah, our first one was Free Market Revolution, which was talking about the morality of capitalism and the morality of business. And one way to think about this book is that we are talking about kind of the biggest attack on the morality of capitalism and the morality of business. Uh, I did another book in between these two just on the history of the welfare state. But this is our second undertaking together.
1: Now, do you think this book is more topical today, uh, with what's going on in, in in the states?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, really around the world, I think there's been a particularly since two thousand eight. There's really been this growing discussion about. Is the major problem, what are the major problems facing Western nations? And of course, I'm writing in particular about the American context. And there are a lot of voices who think that the major problem we're facing is growing economic inequality. And then they have lots of remedies that they propose for fighting economic inequality. And so we're really putting a foot in that debate because up to this point, there's been a lot of people who are very alarmed by economic inequality and saying we have to fight it, but very few people saying that. Actually, economic inequality, if it's the product of a free society, is something that is not problematic at all, but just a byproduct of people pursuing their happiness and and enjoying opportunity.
1: Do you think uh, part of the um, equality formula is the debate about sustainability now?
0: I think there are a lot of concerns about the future of the economic trajectory we're on. And whether it's what's going to happen to employment, uh, you know, sustainable growth, what is happening to economic growth, the fairness of an economy is the system as uh, Bernie Sanders, who's running for president in the Democratic Party, um, is the system rigged, and if it's rigged in what way and by whom. And I think economic inequality is really this broad umbrella, which if you're going to boil it down, says... That the core of what's going wrong in these countries is that the rich are getting richer at the expense of everybody else. And that really is the core of what we're challenging. There are a lot of problems, a, a ton of economic problems and challenges today, but we think looking at it through the lens of economic inequality actually leads us to ask the wrong questions and to give the wrong answers.
1: Well, I think there's a lot of uh, frustrated and angry people out there, and a lot of those frustrated and angry people also haven't done any research. Um, and that's one of the problems is the more you read into the issues, the harder it is to give a black and white answer. Um, and that's what's interesting about this book is, is you kind of – you could have put a, a line in the sand saying, hey, look at you – know, this is the problem with uh, this equality formula. It, it's, it sounds great, it's like lots of rah-rah behind it, but um, there are some fundamental flaws. Uh, do you think having a stance like that that's a little bit more black and white and less vague is kind of like your your moral responsibility as, as communicators and educators?
0: Well, I mean, the way I think about it is you have this discussion uh, about our economic future and this discussion about economic inequality. And I come from a background in philosophy, and one of the core perspectives that philosophy brings to the table is the importance of clarity. And yet I've been completely unimpressed with the clarity of the discussion over economic inequality. And so part of what we wanted to bring to this discussion was What questions should we ask and how should we think about the issues that are raised? And so let me just give one example of what I mean. Even thinking about things in terms of economic inequality is problematic because it groups together two different kinds of things. William Buckley, uh, who I'm not a fan of, but he had this (laughs) statement that said, you can't take a guy who pushes old ladies in the path of a bus and a guy who pushes old ladies out of the path of a bus and equate them by saying they like to push old ladies around. And economic inequality does that because what it does is it treats as the same phenomenon as fundamentally similar economic inequality that emerges from the fact that we produce very different amounts of wealth. Bill Gates and you know Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos, they produce way more economic value than I do or my wife, who's a teacher, does. And it, it says that, that we should put that in the same category as people who gain enormous amounts of wealth at other people's expense, say a Bernie Madoff who defrauds people or a CEO who gets a lot of special subsidies and bailouts from the government. And it says, well, both of those create economic gaps and we should be against economic gaps. And so we should we should penalize both kinds of people. And you, I think you can't have a sensible discussion about economics and certainly not about Justice and fairness in an economy. If you're equating producers and looters,
1: you know that's interesting. I was looking at a, a chart the other day, and basically that's what it was explaining. Is, is like the problem isn't the difference between the rich that are on the top and the poor or the middle class uh, that are underneath that uh, group. It's a vertical where some of the rich are the problem, and some of the middle class are the problem, some of the poor are the problem, and if you take a look at the chart that way and say let's fix that part so it's that complete vertical swath compared to no it's just the rich at the top are the problem I think we get uh, a lot further along with the situation yes
0: yeah, so I think it's wrong to even think in terms of these groups what we're concerned with is the actions by which a person acquires income. And I think the fundamental question is, does a person acquire it through production and trade, or do they acquire it through theft, fraud, or special privileges from the government that come at other people's expense? And if you think about it in those terms, then it's totally irrelevant whether or not that reduces or increases economic inequality. Economic inequality, remember, does not mean poverty. It just means a gap. And there's no reason why we should be concerned with gaps. And you can think about it this way, which is that Bernie Madoff may have increased inequality, but we don't view him negatively because he made the world more unequal, we view him negatively because he stole other people's money, which is why if a pickpocket robs a doctor, he might be creating more quality, but that does not make his crime any less of a crime. And by the same token, we should celebrate productive achievement, whether it's, you know, my wife is a teacher, as I mentioned, and even if she's the greatest teacher on earth is only providing economic value to what, a few dozen kids each year. And there's no reason why that's going to be anywhere close to a Jeff Bezos who's providing economic value to millions of people every day. And so I think it's, we should focus on actions and individuals rather than groups and their economic, and, and so and alleged economic classes.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Let's back up a little bit here because uh, I want people listening to really understand the vocabulary that we're using here because you know this is all about understanding fundamental uh, things. So when you say income equality, you're not talking about minimum wage. You're talking about what a person does within the workforce, what the value of that particular participation is. Or am I got it slightly wrong?
0: Economic inequality is this broad umbrella. And what it basically says is that the ideal we should aspire to is equality of economic outcomes. And that does not mean that most people want us to be totally equal. What it means is they think that anything that takes us in that direction is that the closer we can move in that direction, the better, and the further we move away from that direction, the worse? And then the question is well, what kind of things move us towards more equality, and what kinds of things move us away from equality? And one of the things that we see today is that things like the minimum wage are endorsed precisely because they make people more equal. And what we're saying is that if you're concerned with fairness, the it is economic equality is not an ideal because so there is a sense in which fairness involves equality. Aristotle said equal things have to be treated equally. Right. So it, it just you know, we're all individuals and we have equal rights. And so the government can't give special favors to some of us and it can, and it shouldn't put you know special restrictions on the freedom of some. But in other respects, we are unequal. And as Aristotle also pointed out, justice requires treating unequal things unequally. And if you look at productive merit, this was the point I was making about Jeff Bezos versus my wife, they pro- people produce very unequal amounts of economic value. And so to say that they should be rewarded they shouldn't be rewarded according to merit. They should be rewarded in a way that's more equal is really unjust because it's depriving people of something that they deserve and giving other people what they haven't deserved. And so I would definitely include something like the minimum wage under that. But that's only one example. There's many, many policies uh, aimed at reducing inequality. I think uh, the main ones that you see are attempts to reduce inequality not by lifting up people at the bottom And I don't, in fact, think the minimum wage does lift up people at the bottom. But most of the alleged ways to proposals for solving inequality are bringing down people at the top, whether it's through high taxes, even pay caps on CEOs have been proposed. In one way or another, the idea is we need to penalize and bring down the most successful individuals in order to make society more equal. And I think that is enormously unfair.
1: You know, you mentioned something very interesting. There is 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 pay caps, and um, you know, I had an interesting discussion with an author the other day. And what he basically said is, is the problem that organizations have, large organizations have, is that the CEO, the guy that's running the ship, cannot be tied to stock because if he is, then he's going to have the wrong moral outlook on the business. It's like he becomes a shareholder so then he's motivated by uh driving the business forward for profit's sake if he's given a uh handsome salary where he doesn't have to think about making money through stocks uh in that particular company then it alleviates the burden of him having to worry about that and he can drive the co- the company on a business sense on on the ethics of business and these days uh a lot of it isn't about profit it's about sustainability uh, temperament in the workforce, uh, a work environment that's uh, a great place to work, those type of things. So that's the reason a lot of CEOs are paid such outrageous amounts of money. It's actually, it's not that outrageous because what you're asking them to do is actually make a lot less money than if they were given dividends and stocks in the company.
0: I mean, I think the general issue with CEO pay is that this is something that is the business of shareholders and CEOs. It's the owners of the company who have the right to decide how a CEO should get paid. And how a CEO should get paid is a very complicated question precisely for some of the reasons that you mentioned, which is pay is an incentive. And so you want to think very carefully about what what do I want to incentivize and what am I actually incentivizing given a certain way of constructing pay, and different companies I think are, should be free and will by necessity have to take different approaches to compensating CEOs. One of the reasons that many uh, companies do use stock options and things like that is because it, it, it's seen as tying the incentives of the CEO to the incentives of shareholders, which has always been one of the challenges of a publicly owned company. You have a bunch of shareholders who are not very invested in the business in the sense that they might have a relatively small share of their holdings in a given business. And yet, you're trying to get the management to act for the sake of its owners, not for the sake of the management itself, right? Like You don't want the CEOs going around uh, spending all the shareholders' money on private perks for themselves, rather than acting for the health of the company. And so, having them be part owners is one way of doing that that. And, um, the, and, and so I, my basic view is that it's, it's none of other people's business. It's not an outsider's business how much and how a CEO gets paid. And I think it's very interesting that we're taught to have very strong opinions about CEO pay. And yet I think most people, probably not in your audience, but a lot most people, if you ask them, what does a CEO do? They will not have a very good answer. And they don't need to have an answer because they're not the ones paying those bills. It is, uh, it's is—it's only from the perspective that society should get to dictate what a private, what a company pays its uh, employees, including its managers, rather than that is an issue between consenting adults, as it were. It's only from that perspective that society should be dictating all these things that we would, if we were going to do it, have to be. Experts in what a CEO does and how to motivate a CEO. No, if you don't like what a company's paying its CEO, don't buy its products and don't buy its stock.
1: Exactly. One of the things too is you know people should be rewarded for the benefits that they bring an organization, and that's why in professional sports there are players that are paid you know a relatively okay salary, you know 80000 um, dollars, because they're not actually bringing the people and getting them to sit in the stadium it's the superstars of that team that bring in hundreds of millions of dollars for the organization by driving crowds uh, to the game and of course it's you've got your whole team but there's many many elements of that team it's it's not just the guys that go up and, and and play the sport there's the support teams there's the stadium itself it's a huge organization it's a huge undertaking so Why do people get upset about guys in sports getting paid millions of dollars because they're actually creating hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for the company they work for?
0: Uh, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I think in part it is this idea that one person's gain has to come at somebody else's expense. We're really taught, to, particularly by the inequality critics, we're taught to think about the world as a zero-sum world in which if somebody makes a fortune – somebody else had to lose out. But how do people actually earn income? It is n- not by this kind of, you know, war of all against all. It's by producing things, by creating things. And in general, if somebody's making a lot of money, you're exactly right, it's an insignia of how much they've created, how much value they've created, not a, not an insignia of how much worse off they've made other people. And I mean, you can just think about it. I, I like to think about it in terms of, uh, you know, an author. So Stephen King is, you know, one of the most successful authors in the entire world. And how did he become rich? Because he didn't start out that way. It wasn't that he went around robbing people or saying, hey, I'm going to read you my scary books if you don't open your your wallet. Uh, and it wasn't that he went to the government and they said, hey, Stephen, this is a really great book. We're going to give you, you know, a million dollar subsidy. It was that millions of us voluntarily turned over, say, $10 per book. And why did we do it? We did it because we valued the book more than the money. And yet he and his publisher valued the money more than the book. And so it was a win-win transaction. Both, of, both sides became better off. And yet, here's a question, what happened to economic inequality? Well, Stephen King became a multi-millionaire. I think his net worth is estimated at four hundred million dollars. And the rest of us were, you know, a little worse off. Our net worth went down by ten bucks, as it were. But everybody was actually better off. We got the satisfaction of the books and and he got the money. And so it's an insignia that you can become very, very rich by making the world a better place. And I think it's interesting even if it's true to some extent that people like Stephen King or sports stars are looked down upon for their huge pay salaries. I think a lot of people are not too angry about those because they see in some they do most people do see in some sense, yeah, LeBron James, you know, brings a lot to the table in basketball or, you know, uh, Wayne Gretzky had brought a lot to the table in hockey. When it comes to business achievement, I don't think people have that because as I mentioned before, most people don't know what a CEO does. And so it's hard for them to grasp. How could somebody be worth millions and millions of dollars? But if you take actually the, you know, the Fortune 500, the companies with revenues between 2 billion and $200 billion, the average pay for a CEO is about last year was just over ten and a half million dollars. Now that's a lot of money, but that is barely in the same league as the top athletes, the superstar athletes. And when you think about it in terms of if a, if a CEO of a hundred billion dollar company, if he makes just a few percentage differences in the performance of that company, he can be contributing way more than ten and a half million dollars to the bottom line. And so there should be nothing worrisome about a, a large payday if it's earned through production and voluntary trade rather than thievery.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the book. In part two, discovering the American dream, the land of opportunity and the conditions of progress. Number one is, do you think people have lost sight of the American dream or has it just changed a little bit? I mean, it's a it's an interesting question. I think
0: you have have to start by asking, what is the American dream? And originally, the idea was that you this was a land where you were free to rise as far as your ambition and ability would take you. And you can contrast that with the old world, right? Like in the old world, it was if you weren't born into an arist- aristocratic life, uh, if you weren't part of some guild, then no, it didn't matter how good you were, you could not rise, and I think we've seen a real transformation in the understanding of the American dream from the freedom to rise by merit towards having certain outcomes. And so often people will talk about the American dream as having a house with a picket fence or, you know, a, a good retirement fund or something like that. And I, I think that really illustrates this a real um, loss of the ideal of the american dream which of course is really wider than america it's really the 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 dream of what a free society offers it's a society where we can make of our lives whatever we want but we have to work for it and i think a, a number of things have happened because we have seen a decrease in our freedom to pursue the american dream we've and we can talk about some of the ways in which we've lost those freedoms um then many people do feel as though no i can't make of my life what i want they do have this sense that the game is becoming rigged there seem to be these political insiders who can fail and get bailed out and yet they do all the right things and lose their job and so they have they have this sense that um Look, we're, the you know the American dream is no longer real, and then if you combine that with thinking about the American dream in terms of outcomes, a lot of people feel as if they shouldn't have to work, or at least they're told they shouldn't have to work and rise by merit to achieve certain outcomes. They should be guaranteed by the government. You shouldn't have to work to keep a job in a competitive economy, and if your job goes to you know it moves to a country where people can perform it more efficiently, then. Somehow you should have been guaranteed a job for life, and shouldn't have to learn new skills and adapt to changing circumstances. And so the whole perspective of the American dream, I think, is vanishing. And it, if you really want to boil it down to one thing, it is we've gone from a we've gone from a world in which individuals viewed themselves as having to be self reliant. And viewing self-reliance as the path to making a great life for yourself to uh, living in a world where we think that individuals should be able to be guaranteed certain things and a certain standard of living from the group. And they're no longer seeing that guarantee fulfilled and so they feel powerless and frustrated.
1: Yeah, and disgruntled. Yes. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the you know, you, you mentioned it, uh, the freedoms that have lost, the, the, the disconnect that we've got right now and, and why uh, and what are those, those freedoms or, or incentives?
0: Yeah, so the way I like to think about it is that we do have an inequality problem, uh, but it's not a economic inequality problem. It's a political inequality problem. Political equality was this idea that was rooted in the Enlightenment that each individual has the same rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that the government's job is to protect our rights equally so that we're free to make the most of our lives. We're free to start a business. We're free to get whatever job we want. We're free to negotiate for whatever pay or whatever uh, employment terms that we want. We're free to sell things for whatever price we think is right. Versus this idea of some people are going to get, you know, monopoly privileges from the government. They're going to get special favors from the government. And other people are going to be handicapped. They're not going to be allowed to get a job uh, unless they can join some, you know, guild system. And I think that we've really moved away from political equality. And just a couple examples. So... In, during 2008, 2009, there were, of course, those series of bailouts. Some financial institutions, auto companies. Basically, it was some businesses that had political influence got protected from their failures, and other businesses that didn't have political influence just had to suffer the consequences or you can think about so-called green energy you have companies that create energy that are politically correct and that's you know solar and wind and they get enormous subsidies from the government and then you can think about companies like uh, fossil fuels which even though they provide over 80 percent of the energy that keeps us alive and keeps our lights on are politically incorrect forms of energy and so they have a lot of special restrictions and punishments to the point where um, in in the US, the basically the coal companies have been more or less outlawed and and this is, goes on all across the economy. And then if you look at people starting at the bottom who are just trying to get a leg up, they face enormous special barriers. They're, they can you know for, for me, I can go and just uh, find a job and negotiate a salary. but with things like the minimum wage, the government says, I live in California, and we are on track to increase our minimum wage to $15 an hour. And what that really means is if I'm poor, if I don't have a great education, if I don't have valuable skills, and I can't find somebody to pay me $15 an hour, it's illegal for me to work. It's illegal for me to get a job and take that first step on the ladder to success. Or let's say I can't get that first job, so I want to take a skill that I have and use it to start a small business let's say I'm very good at hair braiding and I want to braid people's hair well in most states in the United States you have to get a special license from the government that can cost hundreds of dollars and hundreds or even thousands of hours and just in order to to braid hair even if people are willing to be your customers and that is particularly huge burden on poor people who either don't have the money or can't afford to take that unpaid time in order to get the license or both and so we've seen these restrictions on freedom growing and it makes it harder for people to succeed by merit and it makes it easier for other people to succeed at other people's expense
1: Hmm. it you know brings us up to the the concept of the nanny state where because somebody has complained about something uh, in the past, a law or a new system has been put in place to alleviate that. And it's the, the, the consequences of that law or, or new rule that's been put in place totally uh, is it's a biased opinion or the, the ramifications are ridiculous compared to the first party that was involved.
0: Yeah, I mean, so the 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 nanny state is all premised on this idea that individuals are basically incapable of governing their own lives, and so they need society and its, its leaders, particularly its intellectual leaders, to dictate how they live for their allegedly own good. And I think this is just a really wrong view of human nature, and it certainly is not the view that led to the creation of the United States. Um, which was that the United States and and free countries in general came out of the Enlightenment where it was the individual has the power of reason. He has the power to think and make choices to govern his own existence and therefore he should be free to make those choices and govern his own existence. And And philosophically, this is what's called individualism. It's that each individual's life is sacrosanct. It belongs to him and he can make the decisions about how much money to save for retirement or how much to spend today. He has the the freedom to, and the ability to make decisions about you know, what, what he eats, or what he smokes, or what he drinks, and so on, as long as he's not violating other people's rights. But then there's another philosophic orientation called collectivism, which views the group as above the individual, the individual subordinate to the group. And so the leaders of the group get to dictate how individuals live, what they do with their lives, and what they do with their property, allegedly for the greater good of the group. And and collectivism always involves there's these elites who are going to be the rulers and spokesmen for the group. And these are the experts who are going to tell us that, no, you shouldn't have the freedom to smoke e-cigarettes. Uh, we're going to ban them. And you know, you shouldn't have the freedom to decide how much to save for retirement because you'll be stupid and you won't save enough. So we're going to force you into social security or some other, uh, government pension system. And all of, all of the nanny state involves in one way or another, taking away people's freedom in the name of the collective welfare of society. And what I'm for is Individual freedom so that each individual can make the most of his life. Because will some people make ra- irrational decisions? Yes, but it's unjust to punish the rational for the sake of the irrational. Because all of these nanny state restrictions, what they do is they come at the expense of the rational person. So think about something like um, the FDA. The FDA in America is our regulatory body that dictates uh, which drugs we can take. And so is it true that if there weren't the FDA telling us what drugs we can and can't take that some people would make bad decisions yes but a rational person is being barred from taking potentially life saving medicines and they've done studies and estimated that the incredible number of people who have died because they haven't had access in time to potentially life saving uh, medications even though for example they were approved you know earlier with no problems in Europe and so I'm against the nanny state. I'm for a free state, which is that you protect people's rights and they can prosper according to their rationality.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people should be treated as adults Um, when they're perceived as an adult um, is a is a totally different uh, question. But, you know, it. It's almost like a Darwinistic approach. If we're constantly uh, helping people that are too stupid to make intelligent decisions, decisions all you're going to do is propagate uh, non-intellectual and, and not very bright people and the people that are bright and actually doing something that's going to be beneficial to the society in the long run um, are penalized for it and, and in the you know and I'm saying like 50, 100, 200 years, the conditions that you will be in will be very, very messed up. Um, Luckily, because of uh, political shifts and and huge upheavals in in societies, that hasn't happened yet. But gosh, I mean, we've got enough technology going on that people are going to start living a lot longer. And the ramifications of uh, a lot of these things that we have in place are going to become incredibly counterproductive.
0: Yeah, I mean, just at a common sense level, it's insulting to be treated like a kid. Uh, you know, I uh, I'm capable of deciding what to do with my money. Uh, I'm capable of deciding what you know medicines I'm going to take. I'm capable of deciding what kind of diet I'm going to have. And it is a complete violation of my rights for somebody else to say, "Well, I'm an expert, so I'm going to control your life." And that is the complete opposite of a free society.
1: Mm. Well, unless what you're doing is is putting others in harm, like I'm going to get completely wasted on alcohol and drive around fast in my car, that's a different scenario.
0: Right, exactly. I mean, that's why we need a government. I'm not an anarchist. Uh, I I believe that governments perform a very important role, which is so. This is this is the big achievement of the Enlightenment. The we've always had this problem of human beings benefit enormously from living together and dealing with one another. We benefit in knowledge, we benefit in trade, and we benefit in companionship. But we are also potentially the biggest threats to one another. And so the question is, how can you create a society where you have the benefits of living together without the threats? And the big the big achievement of the Enlightenment was this concept of individual rights. And what individual rights did is they identified your sphere of independent action as an individual how can you act in such a way that you don't have to ask for other people's permission you can make your own choices and then what are the limitations on that so that other people have that same sphere of independent action and freedom and this is really what the idea of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness is it's saying that you have the right to take all of those actions for the protection and furtherance and enjoyment of your life so long as you're, you're respecting everybody else's freedom to do the same, which means you're not using coercion and compulsion to take away their freedom and property.
1: Let's talk about basically the end of the book is, is how to save the American dream. Do you think it's in that dire straight, because we have kind of talked about what the American dream is or, or reaffirmed what it is, is it in the state where it has to be saved?
0: I think there's two perspectives that are relevant. So one is, I think that the people who are talking about us as if we're about to go off a cliff and there's nothing good in the world and we're all getting exploited by the 1%, they paint a ridiculously dark picture. The fact is that we've never been healthier, we've never been richer, there's never been in, in many ways a better time to be alive. But what is true is that the preconditions for that, the preconditions of progress and happiness are being chipped away at. I think there's two elements that are relevant here. One is what we've been talking about is the political freedom necessary to pursue your own happiness and your own economic success. But the deeper, the deeper issue, and the reason why we're losing that freedom is the moral recognition that we give to success. That is economic success, making something your life, building a business. That is a great achievement. All else being equal, to produce something, to be a maker, as it'll sometimes be put, is good. It deserves our admiration. And I think that instead of celebrating success, what we've come to do is, although most of us pursue it in our own lives, when we achieve it, we tend to feel guilty. And when we see others who have achieved success, we've tended to view them with suspicion at best. And this is really one of the reasons that I'm so opposed to the economic inequality crusade is I think they are teaching us to look down on success, to view it with suspicion, to view it as a negative thing. And if that happens at a widespread level, that no, I don't think the American dream can survive. I don't think a free society can survive. And so, when you have things like President Obama coming out during his commencement speech at Howard University, telling these kids who are about to, who have just achieved something great, graduating from college, and who are about to start out on their careers, and and what does he think they need to hear? Success is a matter of luck. Your graduation, you guys got lucky. You shouldn't think that it's about you and your choices and your achievement. When you create a culture where people are really deprived of the ability to feel pride and earn success and are deprived of the ability to think that they can achieve success if they, if they do the right things, then you cannot have a free society for too long. Because when people feel that life is out of their control, every dictatorship in history is based on this idea that um, Hey, life, is it just an issue of fate? Your job is just to follow orders from the collective. Whereas every free society has always been based on the idea of your life is what you make it. You can be the author of your own success. And so it's in that sense that the American dream is threatened. And not only in America, it is the preconditions of a, of a country that's experiencing and enjoying human progress are being chipped away at and that's really what i'm trying to defend in equalism fair
1: hmm, interesting it's an issue of education and perspective i mean this is what's great about the book it, it enables you to read it and and see a specific point of view that is heavily researched and i just don't think people are putting the time and energy into being responsible for their opinions. And a lot of this is driven by social media and we have kind of a very veneer-based reality that we're dealing with, with with these knee-jerk reactions like they're liking stuff or making unsubstantiated comments or getting angry about something but not understanding the formula behind it. Do you think that because people are not doing any research and educating themselves and being conscious of what's really going on, that stuff like income inequality is becoming more and more relevant
0: uh yeah i definitely think that plays a certain role and part of what happens is i think a lot of the people who would agree with me and who are the kind of people who are really trying to do something important with their lives and so they don't have the time to give these issues the kind of depth that they would like to be able to speak out effectively and so The what I the way I think about it is that there is this division of labor, right? Like you're a businessman, you're going out there, you're building your business and you probably barely have time for your kids. But what can you do to make a difference? And going off half cocked on Facebook is not a recipe for being persuasive. And so what I always encourage people to do is your highest leverage is finding resources by those who's role in the division of labor is to specialize in ideas and specialize in persuasion and help share those resources. So historically, the way that every intellectual movement has flourished is that there's a handful of resources that just get massively distributed. And um, and so, for instance, what I suggest to people who are interested in this issue is they can go to equalsunfair.com and they can get the first chapter of my book for free. And they don't even have to give an email address or anything. They can just click it right there. And if they think there's something valuable and then they read the book and find it persuasive, the best thing you can do is you can help get the book into the hands of any person, particularly influential people that are part of your sphere of influence. And th- this is like the, the kind of leverage that's available from just distributing and handing out books is amazing because it takes a few dollars or a few moments of your time and yet the results can be incredible like i you know i i just think of think of the most influential intellectuals in the world who say things that you like like maybe you like somebody like thomas Sowell, or maybe you like somebody like paul krugman whoever it may be it what if you were the person who when they were a kid you had handed them, you know, the book that changed their lives and helped solidify their political views. You would have basically created massive amounts of influence at very small cost. And so I say find resources that you think are persuasive and and get them into the hands of the people who you think are open to persuasion.
1: Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I mean, one of the reasons that uh, I do this Business Book Talk podcast and the interviews is I'm fascinated with all the different opinions and you know that's probably one of the most important things that a businessman can do is you know once they you know have graduated and have their degree and, and get into business and they're successful in business and whatever at a certain point they have to start re-educating themselves because business is evolving the world is evolving and things are happening that they have to be aware of and you can't get that by listening to the the nightly news you cannot get that by um, watching stuff on on, uh, social media, you have to pick up a book and you have to read what somebody has spent a lot of time and energy uh, putting together and crafting and, and, and gathering the information that on that particular subject. And then you read it and then you form an opinion. Now, just because you read a book doesn't mean you have to believe in it 100%, but you definitely should analyze it and talk to people about it. And I think you're right. If you believe in a book and it's uh, taught you something and it's given you value. There's nothing wrong with you going in and giving it to somebody else Says, hey, I just finished this book. It's amazing. Please read it. Let's talk about it. Or telling somebody, please get this book. Um, some of the great leaders out there, I think it was a book called Who Moved the Cheese? Or, yeah, Who Moved the Cheese? Uh, the guy that uh, was running BMW bought 40,000 of these books and gave it to all his employees, because he felt the message was that important that everybody in his organization needed to know it. So, yeah, there's there's an incredible amount of power that uh, anybody, regardless of your situation in life, can do. Whether Even if you you can't afford a book, just go to a library, read the books, discover great books, and tell other people, wow, this is an amazing book. You can get it in the library. It doesn't cost you anything. Read the book. Figure out what's going on and uh, you have a much better chance of actually helping the situation instead of mudding up the water.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of businessmen tend to be skeptical of ideas and skeptical of anything where the solution is education and persuasion. And I think it is that most of what, you know, the money that gets spent on education and persuasion is wasted. But, but some of it is not and that's why I say like, look for resources that you think are genuinely persuasive. Most things are not written to actually be persuasive it, it, I'm talking about in the field of changing ideas not necessarily just educating people about growing a business right but it's most things are written to basically make your tribe feel good about itself and superior to the, its enemies right uh, but if you can find things that are persuasive and I think they, they do exist that's the thing that you want to propagate
1: I've been chatting with Don, America's Misguided Fight Against Income Inequality, Equal is Unfair, definitely a book to check out and uh, share it with a friend as we've talked about on the show. Don, thanks for being there. It's
0: been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes like us at facebook forward slash business book talk follow the host on twitter at bob garlic visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews see you next week